0: Yeah, and I I think they were super honest in that video because that's so true for a lot of us, right? Like, Like, we want those words to be true and we hope those words are true, but when we look at our lives, it seems that so often the law of diminishing returns applies to so many things. You know what I'm talking about? Like the law of diminishing returns refers to like you, you invest this much into something and for a season it gives you more than what you invested back, right? Like you, you get more than what you gave, but at some point that ceases to be true and you keep investing more and more, but what you get back is less and less. And it could be anything. It could be, it could be time, it could be money, it could be energy, it could be your very life that you invest into something. And then over the course of time, it doesn't give you what it once gave you. And that applies to even the simplest of things, right? It could be a job that you thought, man, that, that's the ultimate. If I could just get that job, if I could get that promotion, then I won't need anything else in life. I'll be what? Satisfied. And then you get the job and a few weeks in, you're like, man, I don't even like my boss. I don't like what I'm doing. And this job is not all that I was, it, it was cracked up to be, right? It could be a person, right? How many of us, you've been through this? You know, you're like, man, if, if that person would just go out with me, that would be like the ultimate, like that would be the, the best. And then you're like 30 minutes into the first date and you're like, this is awful, this is terrible. This is not not what I thought it was going to be. This person is not who I thought they were going to be. It could be that, that puppy that you got, and for the first two days, all you want to do is play and cuddle with that cute little puppy, but after a few sleepless nights and then peeing on your carpet a few times, you're ready to send them back to the breeder. It could be the, the team that wins the championship. You go to the parade and you get the t-shirt, but a week later, life just seems normal again. It could be the, the dream house, that if you could just get that house, if you could just build that house, then you won't need anything else in life. You'll be satisfied. And Then one day, you realize, man, all the drywall screws are coming through the wall and there's cracks in the basement you need radon mitigation and the neighbors are terrible and it just goes on and on and on it's not what you thought it was gonna be gold gold medals still collect dust at the end of the day so something that initially provides you with a lot of happiness doesn't really do that anymore And, and here's the reality pursuing happiness is absolutely inescapable Blaise Pascal said it this way a long time ago all men seek happiness this is without exception Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Another way of saying that, or the way I would simplify that, would be to say this. We always do what we most want to do. We always do what we most want to do, and here's the real weird part. Even when we are doing something we don't want to do. Does that make any sense at all? Some of you are like, Scott, it's way too early for this. All right, here's what I mean. So let's say you don't want to go to work tomorrow, okay? You you do not want to go to work tomorrow, but you still go to work tomorrow. Then why did you go? Because you wanted something more than you wanted to not go to work. We always do what we most want to do. We can't avoid it. So last week we kicked off this series that's making this really brave claim, that, and that claim is that God is good, and that God wants to, contrary to popular belief, God wants to give us good gifts, and he's not out to spoil our fun, and he's not out to ruin our life, and what God has for us, this is where we landed last week, is actually beyond what we could ever hope for, dream, ask for, or imagine. So we're going to keep unpacking Psalm sixteen eleven. This is a very easy one to memorize. This would be worth memorizing this week. You make known to me the path of life. In other words, God not, not only makes a path of life for us, but he makes it clear what that path of life is. And we learned last week that the path of life is Jesus. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. That's what we're going to explore today. And then the last part of that is at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And that's a vastly different perspective than a lot of us grew up being told God is all about, right? What what the Bible actually teaches, though, is that God is good. He gives good gifts to his children. And the problem is we so often get infatuated with his good gifts at the expense of him, the giver of those gifts. So we've been looking at this famous quote from C.S. Lewis who said it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite, here's our word for today, joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far, far too easily pleased. It's like sitting on the beach content to put your feet in a baby pool instead of diving headfirst into the vast and endless sea. It's like going to the mountains and closing all the curtains and sitting down on the couch and watching a Netflix documentary on mountains right? It's right out there. But we do stuff like that all the time. You make a good thing an ultimate thing and ultimately that good thing becomes what? A destructive thing. When we make a good thing a God thing, that's not a good thing. Because good things don't have the gravitational pull to keep everything else in our life in order. They aren't qualified. They can't hold up under that amount of pressure. So it's not a bad thing, but it's a good thing gone bad. So last week we had some homework, and about three of you probably did it because it was going to be really difficult homework, and it involved looking at another person who knows you really well and saying, asking this question, do you see anything in my life that's become an, a good thing, that's become an ultimate thing, and now it's become a destructive thing? And I warned you last week, if you're brave enough to ask this question, and the person who's answering is brave enough to answer honestly, you're going to get very, very defensive because whatever they're going to answer with is going to be something very near and dear to your heart, because if it wasn't, you wouldn't have made it an ultimate thing, And the second piece of homework was to ask yourself this question, is there a person in my life that I'm making an ultimate thing and thereby making this relationship very, very difficult? Because no person can give you what only God can give you. So last week I had some people come up to me in the lobby and ask some really great questions like, Beyond asking somebody in your life if they see this going on in your life, how do you go about kind of diagnosing or discerning whether you're making a good thing, an ultimate thing in your life? And that's a great question. That's what we're going to look at more today. There are certain books for me that I... I come back to it again and again, sometimes just a couple times a year, sometimes every few years, I'll make sure that I pull a book off the shelf and read it again or just read parts of it again. And, and one of the things, one of the books that I seem to come back to over and over again is this really creepy book. It's, uh, it's also by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And it's this kind of strange fiction book where uh, C.S. Lewis writes from the perspective of two demons corresponding with one another via letter, <laughs> It's a great nighttime read. And uh, the the younger demon's named Wormwood, and he's assigned to this man, and his sole purpose is to, like, drag this man's soul to hell. And uh, the the, the uncle Screwtape is kind of his mentor. And at one point in their interactions, Screwtape says this, an ever-increasing craving for a diminishing pleasure is the formula. And there it is. In other words, one of the enemy's strategies and one of his best utilized strategies against me and you is to capitalize on the law of diminishing returns. And I think that applies to good things way better than it applies to bad things because it's the good things that are real danger for for us because, again, we'll justify and defend those good things even though they become destructive things sometimes throughout our entire lives. And this law of diminishing returns is very, very real. Again, it's C.S. Lewis who said it this way. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I think that's true. Real simple, real profound, and really true. I mean, I talk endlessly about how much I love the ocean, how much I love the beach, about how when I'm, when I'm in front of water, like it just does something restorative in my soul. Like it just, it helps me rest. It helps me uh, really kind of settle down and just listen to what God is trying to tell me. But here, here's the thing. When I, when I was at the beach for two weeks last month, you know how I knew it was time to go home? I knew it was time to go home when I could walk out onto the beach and it just seemed normal. When I could just yawn and not really be awestruck by the beauty of the creation in front of me. When I moved out here 10 years ago, I used to almost run my car in a ditch on a daily basis because I was looking at the mountains more than I was looking at the road. I mean, I was just awestruck by the Rocky Mountains. Like, man, people live here, I get to live here. 10 years later, I don't ever do that. I'm a very good driver now. And sometimes it takes having somebody visit from out of town, pick them up at the airport and watch them and listen to them to be reminded of, oh yeah, every day I get to wake up and see those mountains. How beautiful is that? But I don't think that way anymore. It's the law of diminishing returns at work. Now, I can get really, really sad about that and I can try to conjure up old feelings of affinity for the Rocky Mountains and the ocean and things like that, or I can just let those good things provide what they can while they can and not expect them to give me more than they can. That's the proper way to view good things. Let them provide what they can while they can and not demand that they give you more than what they're capable of giving you. Now again, that's not a big deal as it pertains to to mountains and oceans, but it's a really big deal with much bigger consequences when this starts happening with a person in your life. A lot of the questions I got last week centered on how to diagnose if you made a person in your life an ultimate thing in your life. And, and last week I gave this example of dating when you go through this pattern, this continual pattern of infatuation followed by anger, right? You, you start dating somebody and they are like your sole focus in life. Everything else goes away. All of the relationships disappear. And you pour everything into that person. They pour everything into you. And then eventually this little God that you've made cannot deliver what you demand that they deliver. And then you get very, very what? angry and upset so i would contend that when we do that whether it be with a person or with a thing whatever it is when we try to get from good things what we can only get from god what we're really seeking for what we really want and desire so desperately is this thing called joy joy psalm 16 9 says it this way therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. The, that word glad and that word rejoices are, are very interesting. They both um, have to do with joy. One describes what David's heart is in this moment. He's going, My heart is glad. The other describes what his heart, his whole being does, which is rejoice, or that literally means to express joy. See, joy's the thing we're seeking. And the problem is we'll settle for temporary happiness. We'll settle for baby pool kind of happiness at the expense of the depth of joy in the vast and endless sea that God provides us with. And then when that little baby pool fails to provide us with what it once did, we get very upset and we move on to the next one. And we'll keep moving on from one good thing to another good thing, getting very angry and very upset because they always run out and they always run dry. Yet David says in Psalm 16:11, to God, "In your presence there's what kind of joy? Fullness of joy. That's a great word, fullness. It actually is very similar to the word that Jesus uses in John chapter 10 verse 10 that we talked about last week, when Jesus says, "I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly." It means overflowing. It means never running out, never running dry. That's the kind of life, that's the kind of joy that God has for us. And David says, in your presence, man, there's fullness of joy. So the question becomes, okay, so, so if in your presence, God, there's fullness of joy, that must mean that outside of your presence, there's not fullness of joy. So then the question would become, so when are we ever outside of God's presence? Fortunately for us, David answers answers the question. David wrote Psalm 16, but he also wrote Psalm 139, where he says this, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your what? Presence. Then he answers the question, Well, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's like the depths of the earth, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Translation, you can run from God, but you cannot hide. Wherever you go, there is this open invitation to experience in his presence the fullness of joy that God provides to us. The fancy theological word for this is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. So, so listen, that creates a dilemma if we're thinking this morning, right? So, so if David says in one sense, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and then he also says, and I can never be outside of your presence, then the question for us becomes, then why am I not experiencing fullness of joy? If it's always available to me, then why am I not experiencing it? And I I would contend that it's most often good things that get in the way of us experiencing this fullness of joy that's always available to us, regardless of our circumstances. I think we settle for baby pools, or as C.S. Lewis put it, we're just far too easily pleased. We'll settle for mud pies when the holiday at the sea, when infinite joy is available to us. And it's really interesting to me that in the Bible... Uh, the thing that's utilized most often in reference to joy is this metaphor of water, which I can really appreciate because, again, I really like water. And one of the most famous places where this kind of comes out is in this, this interaction that Jesus has with a woman one day by a well. If you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 4. Uh, free Bibles in the back. It'll be on the screens, but if you, if you read it on your phone, whatever you need to do. But let's kind of look at this, this, this little interaction that Jesus has and, and pause along the way to talk about some things. So, so he left Judea. And went back once more to Galilee. Now he, talking about Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Now that's a very interesting phrase because most Jewish people would never go through Samaria. We learned this in our neighboring series. Jewish people didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jewish people. So consequently they would avoid one another. So often people would actually go really out of their way to not go through Samaria. But this says Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's almost as if the Bible's suggesting Jesus had like an appointment there. I think he did. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, that's a very important, important little detail, okay? At noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, stop right there. I've been to, to Africa. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to several third-world countries. been to Haiti. The one thing that's true about all those environments because they're so hot is no one goes to get water at noon. You go to get water either really early in the morning or really late in the evening, but you don't go at noon. So if you go at noon, you're going there for a reason and for a purpose, and it's probably to avoid people. So let's see what's going on in this woman's life that would cause her to do that. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, so it's just him and her. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You, you, don't, have, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman still didn't get it. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and keep coming out here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're very right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. and The man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. I read somebody say this week that most often the way to someone's heart is through a wound. That's exactly what Jesus is doing Listen, there's a lot more to that story and this woman walks away actually totally transformed and she totally transforms her town because of this interaction with Jesus. We did a whole series for several weeks on this, on this little story called uh, Jack and Jill several years ago. You can go online and see that if you want. But I just want to draw one little detail out of this story today. That well that that woman went to day after day after day. Same time, same place to avoid people. To avoid the, the condescending remarks, to avoid eye contact, to avoid uh, being reminded of her shame and her guilt, that well that she went back to every day. She'd go get some water. She'd go home. The water would run out. She would go back to the same well, and she'd have to do it over and over and over again. That well was a metaphor for her life. Like what? What does a woman who's had five husbands and is now living with a man who's not her husband? What does she want? What does she desire? What is she searching for and hoping for and longing for? What does she need? And ask yourself this question. Is there any man in the universe who could ultimately provide those things for her? She keeps going back to that same well or a different version of the same well, one man after another, just baby pools. Maybe this one'll be different. Maybe this relationship will be different. Maybe he'll be different. Maybe he'll give me worth. Maybe he'll give me value. Maybe he'll give me my identity. Maybe in him I'll find joy. And Jesus makes it really clear, man, that well will run dry every time. So here, let me press pause on her story for a second. Let's talk about us. What's your well? What's your well? What do you keep going back to again and again, expecting something different? And Jesus' words to her would be the same as what Jesus would say to me and you. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, there's our phrase, living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus said stuff like this all the time. Look at this in John 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, he's at a big Jewish festival. Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, he interrupts the whole thing. He interrupts the proceedings and starts yelling. Let anyone who is what? Thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So look, we're all thirsty, and I think the thing that we are thirsty for is joy, and there's nothing wrong with that. God designed us to thirst for joy, and I think it's really easy for Christians to fall into this trap of believing that, man, if we pursue joy, we're somehow being selfish and self-centered and too concerned about our own happiness, and I should just do things out of duty and obligation regardless of whether they provide me with any joy or pleasure. That's not biblical, That's not what God commands us. God commands us actually to seek our joy because guess what God knows? If we seek our joy, where are we only going to ultimately find eternal joy? In him. God's rigged the whole system. He's really, really smart. He knows what he's doing. But the biggest enemy to us pursuing our joy is that we'll settle far too soon. We're far too easily pleased. Right before that famous quote of C.S. Lewis's he, he says in the New Testament you can find some discussion about self-denial deny yourself take up your cross and follow me things like that but the question becomes what's the purpose of doing that and the end game in all of that is always joy why do we follow Jesus why do we pr- pursue Jesus why do we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus so that we can live like these these dour eternal lives where we never dance or smile no You reveal to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. Joy is the end game. Does that make sense? So we all have this desire. And again, it was C.S. Lewis who said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. So, So like we have this desire for food. Guess what? There is such a thing as food. We have a desire for sex. There is such a thing as sex. We have a desire for intimacy and connection and friendship. All of those things exist. But what about this desire that we have that we can't even articulate? What about this desire that we have? Then I'll just call it this desire for something more. What about that haunting desire that we find ourselves waking up to sometimes where we're just not satisfied and we have this suspicion there must be something more out there? Why do we have that? Why does that exist? And what C.S. Lewis would say is that desire for something more points to the fact that you were not created for this world. God created you for another world. But we suppress those desires, we push them down, and we try to satiate those desires with temporary happiness, and it always runs dry. So how do you know? How do you know that that's the path you're on? How do you know that you're, you're on this path where you just keep on making good things destructive things? I talked to several people about this last week and one of the ways that you can determine whether a good thing is becoming an ultimate thing in your life is just ask a real simple question. What is this costing me? What is this costing me? One of the things about false gods or idols, these things that we worship, these created things that we make the center of our life is they always demand more and more from us and give less and less in return. It's the law of diminishing returns. So so here's an easy example of a of a good thing that become an ultimate thing and ultimately become a destructive thing. Think of a man who who makes providing for his family the ultimate most important thing in his life. Now that's a good thing, right? We're, we're commanded in scripture, take care take care of your household, be the provider, be the protector, be all of those things. But how many times have we seen this play out? A man who only seeks to provide for his family at the expense of being with his family will ultimately lose his family, right? When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing can become a destructive thing. So what is this costing me? What do you think that was costing that woman at the well? If she were to examine her life, what would she say that one man after another was costing her? I talked to a lady in the lobby last week. She told me this. She said, you know, Scott, I think the things we worry about are the things that we're trying to draw life from. And I think she's on something with this worry thing. I, I would say the things that we worry about are the things that we're trying to find joy in. So if I'm constantly worried about what people think about me or say about me or feel about me and I make that ultimate, what people think about me is the ultimate thing in my life and I'm always worried about that, that reveals that's becoming an ultimate thing. And it's probably why 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, cast all your anxiety or worry on him because he cares for you. So here's another great question. What do you worry about? What do you worry about? That might help direct you towards what you're making ultimate let me ask you another question what makes you angry what makes you angry when our little gods stop giving us what we demand that they give us and it starts costing us more than we ever wanted to give and we're constantly worried about those things and it's creating anxiety in us all the time we become really angry with with those little gods let me give you an example if you make your physical appearance ultimate in your life are you ever going to be happy with your physical appearance no what most often is going to happen is you're going to look in the mirror and you're just going to get angry Because it's never going to be enough. You'll keep giving more and more and more. You'll get less and less and less in return and you'll get really, really angry. Now, is your body a good thing? Absolutely. Our bodies are God's good gift to us that we're called to take care of and to nourish and to steward. Is it meant to be an ultimate thing? Absolutely not. And if you make that good thing an ultimate thing, that'll be the end of you. And here's here's the last one. And I, I hate this question. This is the one I hate the most. What would happen if you lost it? See, that gets, that gets right up against the things and the people in our life that are the closest to us. What would happen if you lost it? Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, the counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. We can do this all day. If you make status your ultimate pursuit because you think that if you have enough degrees at the end of your name, then that will give you the joy that you so desperately seek. Man, you'll be on that treadmill for life until one day you fall off and realize it was an empty pursuit. Recently, I I read this article that was speculating on why it is that pastors of really large churches have this tendency to totally destroy their lives. And I I don't think the article actually got to the heart of it, but, but the article definitely pointed to something that we've all seen happen over and over again, is that pastors of large churches have this propensity to do terrible things, commit adultery, they get really mean, start abusing their church staff, they start drinking too much, and the list goes on and on and on, and I was thinking about that, and I talked about this a little bit last week, but for me, I, I've, I've learned the hard way that if my identity gets wrapped up in, in, in you guys and your approval of me and all that kind of thing, if my identity gets all wrapped up in the quality of your spiritual life or your behavior, like if my identity were determined by your good behavior, man, I'd be in trouble. Your driving record alone would be the end of me. You guys don't realize this, but every time someone with a flat iron sticker pulls out in front of somebody in traffic, I get an email, okay? so So... So here, if you just want to do me a favor, okay, either take the sticker off and just drive like the Dukes of hazard I don't care, all right, or or start driving better, okay, just to save my email. Now, my identity can't be all wrapped up in your performance, and now flip that around. Your identity can't be all wrapped up in my performance or Jim's performance. We're men. We're men we are called to shepherd your hearts towards the heart of the good shepherd for a season, Our job is to point to Jesus, and Jesus is really, really good at his job. He's really good at saving people, fixing people, cleaning people up, healing people, and I'm not, and neither's Jim. It's not our job. If I ever start to believe that it is my job, man, that'll destroy me. And if I had to speculate on why pastors of large churches tend to tank their lives, I I think it's because very, very subtly they get confused with who's Jesus and who is not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And this is not limited to ministry, by the way. Have you ever known anybody with a God complex? You ever known anybody with a Messiah complex? Somebody who had to be everybody's savior all the time? Somebody who, under the guise of humbly always taking care of everybody else, actually drove everyone in their lives crazy? You ever known anybody like that? Jesus had a friend like that. Mary and Martha, these two sisters, and they had a brother named Lazarus, and Jesus was really good friends with all of them. And he would, whenever he was in their town, he would go to their house to stay and hang out. And on this one occasion, uh, Martha is, is, is working really, really hard in the kitchen. She's making preparations. She's trying to take care of people. She's very, very busy. And her sister Mary is just hanging out in the living room with Jesus, just chatting. And it makes Martha really, really mad. So she comes out in the living room. She doesn't yell at her sister. She actually yells at Jesus. He goes, Get my sister's button gear, basically. Like, tell her to help me. And this is how Jesus responds. I love it. Martha, Martha. Jesus says your name twice. You better sit up and pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think he was laughing. In all honesty, I think he was laughing when he said this. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. A few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen. What is better, and it will not be taken from her. Look, the the many things Martha was worried about were all good things. She's doing good things, she's trying to take care of people, she's trying, to, she's trying to make sure everybody gets enough food to eat. She's trying to do all these good things, many, many things which are all good. But Jesus said, You know what? Your sister chose the better thing. And it won't be taken away from her. Now the question becomes what's the better thing that Jesus is talking about? Answer. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the better thing. So in the midst of all of our desires getting out of whack and all of our obsession and infatuation with good gifts at the expense of the giver of those good gifts, what's the solution? And the solution is very simple, and his name is Jesus. John Piper said it so well. It's called waking up to the all-satisfying glory of God. We have to see God for who he is. I, I love uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah actually commands God's people to throw a party Like everybody talks about the commandments. Nobody ever talks about this one. Look at this one. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't miss this. Food, drink, party, those are all good things. But ultimately, this is a famous verse worth memorizing. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Our desires are not too strong. That's not the problem. Our desires are too weak. And they are most often, we're trying to just chase after things that we think will satisfy and they don't satisfy. But God is the ultimate source of joy who never runs out and never runs dry, which means that we can never be robbed of our joy when we're pursuing our joy in God. So how do we kind of like channel our desires towards God? God. I don't have this all figured out. These are just some of my kind of rambling thoughts on this, but I think, I think we have to always search for what is better. Always search for what is better because Jesus said He's better than anything. So don't settle for trying to get happiness out of many good things, but search for joy in the one thing that is better than all things, and that's Jesus who holds all things together. Search for something better. Listen, I know there, there's probably a lot of us right now who are going, Scott. Look, the only reason I'm here is because somebody said they would buy my breakfast. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine without Jesus. I'm getting so much joy and happiness out of A, B, C, and D. Look, I I was trying to think of a, a less blunt way to say this, but I haven't been able to come up with it all weekend, so I'll just continue to be blunt. That ignorant child making mud pies in the slum is very happy for a while. Law of diminishing returns will apply at some point. And like many of us, you can learn the hard way or you can listen to what Jesus has to say, which leads to the next thing. We have to look at Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He holds all things together and we have to look at what Jesus has done. I love the way Brendan Manning says it. The cross is a confrontation with the overwhelming goodness of God revealed in the broken body of his only begotten son. All of those things going on on the cross, God's anger, God's wrath, God's justice, God's mercy, God's grace, all of that put together, you know what you look at that and call it? Good. It's a confrontation with God's goodness. What God was doing on the cross was ultimately good. So if we want to see God for who he is and what he's done, if we're going to seek to get these good gifts that he gives us in our life in their proper orbits, we have to make sure God is the center of our life and that he is is the one that we seek our joy in. The way way that the joy of the Lord is our strength or the reason the joy of the Lord is our strength is because nothing else can compete Nothing else can compete with the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is not just a feeling. It's not emotionally driven, although it affects our emotions. It's not dependent on circumstances, yet it affects our circumstances. The joy of the Lord is not dependent on temporary things because the joy of the Lord is an eternal thing that never runs out and never runs dry. So here's what what I want to challenge us to do. Let's seek our joy in him this week. So here's some homework this week. And, and again, you may not feel like doing this. You may go, man, I'm perfectly happy right now. I don't need this. Okay, file this away. But for a lot of us, for a lot of us, I think we, we need this homework this week more than we need anything else. I think, one of, I think there's two primary ways that God wakes us up to his all satisfying glory. I think he does that through his world and his word. I think he does it through his creation, and I think he does it through the Bible. Psalm 130, verse 5 says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. So here's the homework, all right? Get this. Take a picture of what's coming next or write it down. Make sure you get this. It's very important, all right? Grab a Bible and a pen and something to write on. Journal, notebook, post-it note, I don't care. Whatever that is, okay? Grab all those things, then go outside. Again, because I think there's something that God has built into his creation that it stirs our soul. Go outside. Go find a spot that you like. It could be a park, a, a place you hike to, a hill upon a, a porch, a patio. It could be your neighbor's deck while they're away at work because you like their backyard better than yours. Whatever. All right? Grab a Bible, a pen, journal, notebook. Go outside. Take that Bible. Open it to Psalm 16. Again, if you don't know how to find that, just open to the middle, and you're going to be right in the ballpark. It's very easy to find. Read it really slowly. And as anything strikes you, stop and write it down. Maybe ask a question, maybe a realization, something, something you think is interesting, something you don't understand. Highlight it, circle it, underline it, write it down, whatever it is. Then keep reading Psalm 16. It's only 11 verses. Read it three times slowly. Just linger there for a while. And then when you're ready, just write this phrase down. God, you are good. That might be really hard to write for some of us. But write it anyway. And then sit there. And as things come to mind, as things come to your heart, as you look at his word, start writing down reasons why God is good. If you can't get there this week, maybe write down reasons why you're struggling to believe that. And then when you're done with that, write this phrase, God, you are good to me. And sit there. And it may come like a flood or it may be just kind of a trickling stream. But as you can, write down ways God has been and is being good to you. And I believe that if we do this this week, we're going to find joy. Now, I think it's going to be great for us as individuals, but what if, what if we could kind of somehow share that? Like It it helps us so much to be able to know David's story and his background and his circumstances as we read the words he writes in the Psalms, right? And it helps us so much to know when these worship leaders behind me sing these songs, what's going on in their lives and what's coming out of their heart and what God is doing in their lives as we sing these songs together. What if we could kind of share this week how God's been good to us? and is being good to us. So, so here's the last piece of this challenge. As you sit and you write these things down, either uh, take a picture of some of those things that you would be willing to share or, or type out some of those things that, that God has revealed to you and share those pictures and those thoughts on social media. Go to, uh, go to our Facebook, go to Twitter, go to Instagram and use this, this hashtag, all right? Good God FCC. That stands for Flatirons Community Church. Good God FCC and share that. And so that way we can all go on there and we can hit that hashtag this week and we'll be able to see hundreds, hopefully thousands of people who have had an encounter with the living God who is good this week. God is good. He loves you and he wants good for you. Let's pray. Father God, we really want to be confronted with who you are and what you've done. We want to be confronted with your goodness. So God, this week we're, we want to seek our joy in you and we want to find it there. So God, I pray for all of us as we, as we leave these, these campuses, leave this, these places where we've been worshiping you, that our worship will overflow into our week. We'll be able to sit with you, spend time with you and really meet you. God, I pray that you do more than we could ever ask or imagine this week. We wait for you. Our soul waits. In your word we hope. In Jesus' name, amen.